So if my mom told me not to talk, I didn't talk. Because looking, thinking back on it, maybe she was embarrassed. Maybe she felt like, you know, she didn't want to be exposed for what was going on or be responsible for the way I turned out. But so for a while I didn't talk because mama said not to do it. You're listening to We're Still Standing, presenting the voices and experiences of young people who were caught up in our juvenile justice system. In season two, you'll hear lessons learned in lockup that encourage all of us to live with greater authenticity. Subscribe today, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome everybody, my name's Scott Larson and today we continue our series on life lessons learned from youth in lockup. There are some things that people who go through really challenging things, addiction, prison, abuse, experiencing racial injustice, horrific things, yet in the midst of those, there are some powerful character things that sometimes are not found other ways. And we don't all have to experience every horrific thing to learn some of the lessons that come through that. So this season, we're looking at things that were taught uniquely to those who were in the juvenile justice system. Doesn't mean everybody should go through that system or that system is great. Sometimes it's in spite of those things, as the scripture says, you can count it all joy when you experience troubles of every kind, for they produce in us perseverance and character and character hope. So we're really looking at some of the character things. And today we have Andre Brooks, who we've known each other for a long time, back when Andre was in the juvenile justice system and then lived in our discipleship home uh, for a good amount after that. And, And now we're actually pairing up together to lead a Bible study in the same building that Andre was in. How many years ago now? It was like in the early... 90s. It was in the 90s, wasn't it? Maybe 91, 92, I think. Yeah, so 91. Is that 30 years ago? So here we go. Andre, take us to um, uh, what what was going on with you, you know, before you entered that system. You grew up in, in Boston. And then some of the lessons that really stick out to you. Uh, as you were in this juvenile justice system. that Now, 30 years later, working in this system and having kids of your own that have, have really been life-changing. So what led up to me, so prior to my incarceration, you know, I think I was a, you know, just a confused teenage kid trying to figure out, you know, what life was about. Growing up in Roxbury at, in that era, it was really violent, so just happy to make it another day without something happening. Or, yeah. You know, there was a lot of death going on and a lot of crime. I was a, um academic kid, so I, you know, I did study a lot, but at the same time, um, I felt allured to the streets because it was enticing to me because I was used to always doing the right thing all the time. So I kind of wanted to do the wrong thing a little bit. So I was kind of a mix between the two. Like, you know, I always carried a book around, but I, you know, but I always had time to do a little mischief on the side. You know, I always kept my head up. I always had, you know, thinking back now, I always had the ability to kind of think a little ahead than I did my other peers. You know, I would like to think things through, even though I did things that get me incarcerated, but and actually, by the time I was incarcerated, I was pretty fed up with what I was doing. I kind of wanted some type of, 
I, I hate to say it, but stability. Mm. Prior to that, I didn't really have stability. I was, was kind of like a nomad. I was kind of just going to school. I wasn't really doing much of anything. I was just, you know, surviving, basically. I didn't really have a purpose. Yeah. You know, spiritually, you know, my mom was a spiritual person. We did go to church. It was expected. Sometimes it was a little too much for me at times. But then there were times where on my own, I would really feel like God was moving with me, whether it was ministering to kids in my school on a school bus, um, doing testimonies. Um, like So I was active when I was younger. Then I kind of fell away because I just felt like it was just too much. And so I just kind of went another way for a little bit. <clears throat> you know, doing the things I did eventually, you know, got me locked up, you know, by when I was like 16, 17 years old. So that's when I entered the system. And like I said, I can't say that I was devastated by it. It was, it was stability for me. And I just felt like, I didn't know what was, what was in store for me, but I felt like I was in a safer place. I wasn't in Roxbury. I wasn't worrying about getting shot or robbed. And I figured whatever was gonna happen, I was just gonna deal with it as best I could. Yeah. So when you entered the system, now you were locked up out in the suburbs, so that was a big difference. Um, you grew up in a community that was pretty much all African-American around you, all the kids at school, church, all that. So now you're, was this one of the first times in your life where you were in a completely different environment than you'd grown up in? Not just that you're locked up, but the people, you know, the system, the others that were in the system around you. And, and how, did, how were you relating to that? Well, the very beginnings, you know, there were mostly detentions, and they were like, you know, mm. I remember, you know, outskirts of Boston. Yeah. Still predominantly black. I still had that same demeanor, so I was still the kid inside, yeah. walking around with a book all the time. But if I had issues, you know, I dealt with them. You know, so I was kind of like aggressive type nerdy kid. Mm -hmm. And people took my quietness because I read as a sign of weakness. So the first year I was always fighting because people thought I was weaker, they thought I was soft or something, so I had to set that tone. But then once I moved on and got more to the treatment facilities, I was able to relax more. And that's when like the therapeutic and the clinical stuff yeah. um, started, I started to get introduced to it. So talk about that a little bit because you were put into what at that time they called a treatment facility and the system was a little different then. You weren't given like six months or 12 months, but you were, you got out when you were ready to get out when you were really doing your work. And when you started to confront this clinical staff and I've heard kids many times talk about, oh, you're like a therapist or something. It's like, it's like a serial killer. It's the worst label you could have is to be a therapist. And so now you're in an environment full of therapists. And what was that like? And, and Well, it was intrusive. I didn't like it at first. It was like, I don't know these people. They don't know me. Mm -hmm. You know, they were kind of young. And I was like, oh, you just get out of college. And now you're trying to experiment on me and <laughs> tell me all this stuff. Like, you don't know my life. You don't know my culture. You don't know nothing about me. As I said before, you know, growing up in a black community, you just don't talk to therapists. It's something you don't do. It was something... Like, you almost needed permission to do it. So if my mom told me not to talk, I didn't talk. Because looking, thinking back on it, maybe she was embarrassed. Maybe she felt like, you know, she didn't want to be exposed for what was going on or be responsible for the way I turned out. But 
So for a while I didn't talk because mama said not to do it. Yeah. So I didn't do it. Yeah. And what was the consequence of that? So in those days, you know, they had a classification board and they would give you a certain time frame that you would have to do. But they didn't tell us in the beginning that it was based on the treatment. So a lot of guys would go to thinking, oh, I got six months, I got eight months, I'm just going to just do it and get out. Then you would find out in your fourth month, oh, we're going to extend you because you didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. We didn't understand what the concept of treatment was. We didn't know. We just want to get back out to the streets. You just want to go home. So when they start telling us, saying the stuff, you got to talk and you got to do these groups, it was just foreign to us. Yeah. There's no, you don't have that kind of dialogue, you know, at, at the house or in the community we were in. It just wasn't something that we did. So it was just hard to do. It was hard to talk to people about your personal stuff, like deep, dark stuff. Yeah. Stuff that makes you get uncomfortable. The kind of stuff that after you talk about it, you go on the floor and get into a fight because you're upset because you don't want to handle the feelings of talking about that stuff. So you walk around looking for a reason to just get into something with somebody because you're upset about it because you don't know how to deal with the feelings because you get, you know, you go to your room and lock the door. You got to think about all that stuff. Yeah. And you get mad at yourself. You get mad, upset at your mom. You start to realize, you know, like you feel a little betrayed a little bit. You feel like you was robbed of your childhood. You feel like, you know, I could have had a lot more things going on. Mm-hmm. But I gotta keep hiding all these these secrets all the time. I walk around this huge boulder on your back because of something that had nothing to do with you. And then you got people trying to remove boulders and take chips off your shoulders and show you a different different way. You just you're not buying into it. So how long did you end up spending in that treatment facility? So I went in, I believe, 16, almost 17, 16. I mean, I didn't think I got it until I was like 18, 19 years old. Yeah. That's how stubborn I was. I just wasn't doing it. Yeah, I know. And then you moved into our home. And, you know, for someone like you who's really bright, who is sort of can see through things, and now they're trying to, as you were saying, intrude into my space, white people trying to, you know, uncover into stuff and especially when your mother tells you don't be talking about that stuff to these people when did you start to open up crack a, a little bit to to embrace this thing and how did that process happen for you because you know truthfully many people who are listening still living you know still living with that you know that what happens at home stays at home you know it's a long time we'll get over it and and yet you know the reality is that until we heal from our unwounded past, or from our wounded past, we, we continue to recreate it. And, you know, we know more and more now, even how our brains function, that it's those early experiences that color every other experience. And so it, it is important to go back into that space, but most of us w- weren't taught to do that. We were, we were taught the opposite. So now you're in a, a a place that could be a great opportunity and actually became that for you. And so how did how did you begin to open up into that space and step into it? I think the first stage was just anger at my mom. Then I started to feel a little abandoned by my mom because at this point, you know, I'm in almost two years. She didn't really come see me. I didn't really hear from her. And I began like, why am I protecting her if she's not even coming to see me? So I felt like I was 
she just kind of left me there, which allowed me to kind of start thinking about, wait a minute, like, I got to start doing for me because I'm locked up. She's not locked up. And this was like after I realized, like, I'm here longer than I thought I was going to be. And I was like, I got to do something because I don't want to be here forever. So then I started, you know, I read a lot of books and I always reflect on things, analyze things. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to start talking to these people and, you know, see what they have to say and maybe it'll kind of, I guess I didn't want to hold a grudge rather because my mom's thing was always um, get over it. Mm. It's not a big deal. And I think she never understood the magnitude of what, how I grew up, how it affected me. So I couldn't get over it, you know? So I decided I'm just going to take care of myself because I've always taken care of myself. It's always just been me. So I just started to do the work. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I was still didn't, you know, I was afraid that when I did leave, where was I going to go? Was I going to go back to Roxbury? What was I going to do? Like, I just didn't know what my, my future was for me. But I knew I just couldn't go back to that lifestyle, and I definitely wasn't going to go back to living this nomad existence. Mm. So I just started doing the work. Yeah. So as we talk about things that occurred through that experience of being locked up, um, that now continue in your life 30 years later, what are some things that you did discover and you did experience that actually altered who you are in a good way, brought out you know more the true Andre that was always stuffed down before? Well, I have to say, you know, meeting you, you know, meeting you know, him and Scott, meeting you guys, and then giving me the opportunity to be out of my environment. You know, one of the things that DOIS did back in the day that was really just kind of productive was kids was there were some kids who would start doing the treatment that would do the work and they would bring them right back. Mm -hmm. They would get out and go right back to the environment. I can't count how many times a friend would leave that I would know and then I would read and oh we had the staff talking about this kid got shot. You know, this kid was arrested again or murdered, or he murdered or was murdered. So they were they were doing the work but putting them right back into the same environment. Yeah. So there was, it was a setup for failure. And the more I heard about it, I got paranoid. Like, I don't want to go back and fail or get killed or kill someone in that cycle. I was like, I got to find an alternative route. So, you know, as I get older, I realized, like, that must have been one little spark that God gave me, the ability to kind of just be reasonable, to really think about and analyze things. Like, just take that one little time to really think about, don't just always go through your emotions. Like, you really got to think way ahead, like, how you want your life to be, so... You know, I met you guys, and that was just ultimate life changer for me because I didn't go back to my environment. You guys took me to a whole new place. Everything was like, it was like stuck a whole new canvas. And I felt like I could let my guard down and just be who I was. I can go back to just being, you know, the, the nerdy type boy. Mm. You know, I can read my books. I don't have to fight. And with the spiritual aspect in it, you know, although, and I said this to my mom a couple of weeks ago, I said, regardless of, how much I felt I was forced to go to church, she still laid the foundation down. Mm. So she put the foundation there for us to just to be introduced to the church. Regardless of the other stuff, the foundation, she laid it. So yeah. I did have to give her credit for that. Because yeah. she, you know, as parents, you want to lay foundations for your children. Yeah. And then, you know, as you get older, you decide what you want to do with it. So I think that's why I was able, when I was at the house, to able to kind of really grasp the spiritual aspect of it and really try to, go, I mean, I really tried in the beginning to really put my head down and just get into the, you know, 
the Bible rules and the, and the youth groups and the, and the, the testimonials, I really was all in it because I felt like I just wanted to do something good. I just wanted to be something great. And I just wanted to do it in the name of God. So I felt like I had that spark again for that time. And I, I was all in. So mm. it was, I was able to um, kind of thrive a little bit. Yeah. And I remember, you know, part of what we did in the in the discipleship home was was feed the homeless. And, you know, we were going to Haiti with the group. And, and you were like, not, not me. I'm not getting on an airplane. And so you started to uh, renegotiate your own mission trip and tell a little bit about that and how that affected you and what you ended up doing. So I believe, I don't know her last name, but it was Linda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the organization was called World Servants, I believe. Yeah. And she was dedicated to, you know, ministry with people with disabilities. It was something I had never done before. I never thought I would ever do. I was interested in it. I think the idea of being a service to other people but also under the guise of doing it in God's name was like interesting and intriguing to me. So I wanted to um, try it out and see what, it, what I could do to help out. So it was a good experience. I think the first year was the camp that I went. Was the, yeah, you went to a camp where there were disabled adults. Yep, yep. Um, and so you were teamed up with one particular adult that you basically would take care of. Yeah. So right there, there's a lesson in humility and humbleness because, you know, you would have to take care of them or, you know, change them. You know, you just watched them. So it was very humbling to do it because then you realize how blessed you are to be in a different position. Like, I have the ability to do the things that you don't. And they're depending on you to make them as, po- as comfortable as possible. And then you meet. It's almost like they're at the, you know, at the core of their heart. They're just sweet people and... So that was the first experience I had working in an organization like that for people. And, you know, not myself, but in service of others. Yeah. And I remember you coming back and saying something to the effect. You you were so excited uh, telling us about the the man that you were working with, autistic man, as I recall. And so, yeah, I, I finally found the reason I was born and that you wanted to do that kind of work. Um, at serving other people. Now you're working with kids who are in the same system that you were in at a period. What are some of the, the things that you still draw on today from those earlier experiences, maybe some of the clinical work or stepping into the unknown that, that you think really has changed you and allows you to bring something to others, you know, that, that's unique because you've been through that. Just all my experiences, you know, when you're working with the youth, you know, I see myself a little bits of me and all these kids, mm. whether it's the loner, the bookworm kid, the, I was like, all those, all those different kids was me and one person. So I see a little bit of me in all these kids. And, you know, I can't help but think about when I was growing up and if somebody was there to talk to me, to help me out, you know, I could have, who knows where I would have been, but things happen for a reason. So I don't regret my path because it led me to where I am today. And I wouldn't change it for the world because of all the experience I had. You know, working with the guys, I just, I felt the pain and I knew exactly what they were going through, even though I didn't think I knew 
what I was talking about, you don't know nothing. And I want to say so many times, you have no idea how much I know, how much I know what you're going through. You know, whether it's issues with mom, environment, spiritual, feeling awkward, all those things. So I was able to use my experience and just be authentic with them and be real with them and make them understand that, you know, life is not over, there's hope. It's all about what you want to do if you want to make that change. But you have to do, because at some point you can keep blaming people, environment, but at some point you have to make the conscious decision to want to change your life. And we're just instruments along the way to help them, to push them to that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've often said to, to kids, you know, once you turn 18, you're going to, if you, if you want to move ahead and have something different than the past, you're going to have to deal with some of the past. And right now you got a team of very expensive professional clinical people that's going to be really expensive to access after 18. <laughs> Why not take advantage of the system? And though it took you a while to do that, you did take advantage of it. And what do you think are some of the things that you learned when you stepped in with Joan and Suzanne? And I'm just thinking some of the, Carlos, some of those mm-hmm. clinical staff way back in, in the 90s who, you know, were not, they, they believed in you and you didn't believe in yourself, you could, you could say, because they weren't letting you off the hook. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you finally stepped into it, what are some of the life lessons that you learned about yourself and just... Well, like I learned... You know, again, my mom's issues are not my issue. My mom's secrets are not my secrets. I wasn't carrying my secrets, I was carrying her secrets. And then the biggest thing I had to learn was to let it go. I had to learn that it wasn't my fault. Mm. You know, I had this philosophy that in order to start over, I had to crumble to the bottom and to start fresh. And I remember I was told, you know, you don't have to go all the way to, if you're on the fifth floor, you don't have to go all the way to the first floor to start over. You can go to the third floor, or you can go to the fourth floor. You don't have to, I always felt like I had to start from scratch. Every time I was disappointed in myself, if I did something, it doesn't always have to be a wash. You can start where you're at and just recollect yourself and just keep going up. You don't have to keep going backwards. So once I realized that, and then you realize that people, actually, I think you have to realize they care about you. Yeah. Because you know, you grow, nobody cares about you more than your mama. So if your mom don't care about you, these people don't care about you, they're here for a check. They're experimenting on me. They're just trying to try, I remember I, said, I had this thing about, they're trying to write their own little thesis. They just experiment on me and they want to go in the office and write this, oh, so today this happened and, and write like a little novel or something. Like, I don't want to be your little experiment. So I just thought they were in for the money. It wasn't, or they were just trying to write, they had a bigger goal than me. I was just a little small step to what they were trying to achieve some doctor or some whatever they were trying to do. And then I realized they was just, they really cared about the guys there. They really wanted to help. And if we would take the time to listen, they had their skills and abilities to show us how to use and give us tools to think differently and do things differently. And once you start to do them and they work, you know, maybe this might work out. And then you realize you don't have to always be angry all the time. You don't always have to, you know, live in pain. You can move on. You know, you don't have to forget, the, you know, live in the past. You won't forget it, but you don't have to wallow in it and, you know, let that be, define who you are. So once I emerged from that, they had this thing, the most scariest thing, where when you would get to the treatment part, the, the top pinnacle treatment, like, you had to confront your mom hmm. or you had to confront your parents about 
all the stuff that Gotcha did, which was like horrifying to think that I would have to confront my mother on what I did or what she did to me, how that made me feel. It's just, again, my mother's thing was just get over it. So to be able to get to that stage, because once I get to that stage and it's like, all right, you're not complete, but you've done that work. That was like the last final, mm. you know, showdown. So to do that was huge. And how did that go? It went like they said it would go. She didn't like it. She was upset, but again, it wasn't about, I learned it wasn't about her response to me. It was about me just telling her how she made me feel and how it affected me. Whether she accepted it or not was on her, but she just needed to hear the feedback from me on what, how, what she did and how it affected me. She was angry. She didn't talk to me for a while, but it just had to be done. And how did that change you and, you know, now 30 years later, your relationship with your mom having that conversation, you think, or a series of conversations? I mean, our relationship is still not the, it's not where I wanted to be, but we still talk, you know, like I said, I just talked to her the other day. She got over it like I got over it. And I think the older you get, you realize, I realize my mom's just going to be who she is. But I also realized we're talking to my mom, she had a lot of medical issues and mental issues that she didn't know she had until she was older. Mm -hmm. So she was still figuring herself out as well. So she had her own journey. And that was the thing. She had to do her own journey. I had to do my own journey. But she was making her her journey my journey. And you can't take me with you because I wasn't where you were at. I'm doing my own thing. So I think once we separated and realized we had to do our own journeys, then we were able to appreciate each other and not be resentful or angry. It's kind of like, it is what it is now. It's, you know, it happened years ago. I still love my mom. There was a lot of good times as much as there were bad times. She wasn't perfect. And being a parent now, as you know, you make mistakes. You try to do the best you can, but we're not perfect. Yeah. Well, and as you said, she grew up with a set of issues that um, were probably worse than you did. She shielded you from, shielded you from some of them, but... They also eat and leak through, just like ours do with our kids. Hopefully, we're all a bit more courageous to do our work so that we, what we pass on and what comes out of us is, is less toxic and, and uh, damage-producing. As you look you know, in your life, now as an adult, when you're a kid, if bad things are happening, youth are the most narcissistic of anybody because so they think, well, it must be I'm bad, that's why bad things are happening versus bad things are happening and you can't really separate out that your primary caregiver, your, your mother or your father, you think everything they do is good and truth, so it must be me that's the problem. And as, as we move into hopefully dealing with some of that and gaining some perspective, some healing, we can pass on less of it to ours. So now, you know, being a parent and working with kids in the system who, like you said, you can see yourself in a lot of those, what are some of the things that you're really intentional about bringing to them that that didn't come to you when you were a kid? I think there was a self-esteem, just feeling like you belong that you're significant, that you're not just some kid, you know, then, you know, working in the field, how do you do that? You know, building up self-esteem, you know, calm, being patient, understanding, just doing a lot of listening. I think they just have to feel that they're worth something, that when you invest your time, you invest the time because you, 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 they're worth something. They are meant, you're here for a purpose. You're not just 
you know, a kid or you're not just, a, you know, your mother's whatever. So I think a lot of these these kids just want to feel loved. A lot of them don't know what real authentic love is. And never mind going from the aspect of, you know, Jesus and loving. Because, again, if you don't get the love at home, you think, you don't think you're going to get it anywhere else. Like, who are you to love me? You don't know me. So it's a lot of patience. But you just got to build them up. You just got to build up the self-esteem. You got to make them feel that they're worth it. And then once they feel worth it, then you show them that you appreciate the time you spend with them. You appreciate who they are, their personality. Like, you know, I, I would spend hours in the office just talking with kids, just, just having conversations, laughing with them, just talking about whatever because they want to be around that because they feel like I'm validated. I feel good. I feel special. Like, they, they want to, you have something to contribute. Whether it's my own kids or the kids I encounter, you just want them to feel like you can be heard. You're special, you know, and you constantly want to remind them that. You, you can do great things. The sky's the limit for you. Yeah, I know for me, it wasn't until I was probably in my 50s that I finally went to a counselor and said, help me know what a feeling is. Because it was causing problems in my life, my marriage, one of our Co-workers, one of my co-workers used to say, the only way I know how you're really feeling is to get you mad. Mm-hmm. And I was so afraid of my anger because uh, of, of my temper as a kid and things I would do and my grandfather's rage and not wanting to be like him. And so, you know, having the courage to do that, you know, I don't even know what a feeling is. Somebody asked me how I feel. Fine. You know, somebody said, fine. Feelings I'm not expressing. <laughs> Good. Uh, mad. Uh, Frustrated with you, you know those are those are feelings. And I used to go into the DYS facilities and see those charts of all the feelings. You know, uh, denial is not a river in Egypt, and uh, and I and I had to learn. Okay, if it's up in my head, it might be anger. My jaw's tight. That's anger. If it's in my gut, it, it's often fear. If it's in my chest, it's sadness. Like I didn't know I was. I, I had survived by not getting rageful and so you shut down when you shut down rage you shut down all feelings and then you shut down passion also and our deepest pain is usually our greatest passion but i don't think we're we get through that on our own you know it's a healthy community it's some outside help a a counselor spiritual director whoever that might be in your life but for those of us who are listening um, you know, your life is not over. And going back into those spaces, painful ones oftentimes, is, is a place to, that passion comes alive. God never wastes pain. It's the, the most powerful tool there is, is it's been said you will either transmit it or it will transform you. And so maybe it, you didn't get the resource that Andre did at 16, uh, resisted it until 17, and then begin to say, well, okay, maybe I'll step into this. And so it's a lot later in your life, but you know that it's just not working, that things are coming up and running your life more than you're running them. You know, and that's what it is. Either you you have these feelings or the feelings have you and they, they run you. And they often do go back to those early years and it can be the place that God most uses to make us the most useful for other people. So thank you for stepping into that with us. And 
you know, God bless your mom. She she did the best with what she had. And like you said, you're built on the foundation that she brought through to you. And now you're carrying a foundation that's even stronger and higher to your children and the children after that. And to all the children that you encounter in this system who are just as scared as you were in there and trying to hold it together and do the best that they can. And hopefully with each of us, we pass on a bit more health than came our way. This podcast was produced by Straight Ahead Ministries on a mission to reach every youth in every facility with the hope of Jesus Christ. This podcast was hosted by Scott Larson, recorded by Scott Larson and Barbara Picard, and produced by James Davis. Please take the time to subscribe, follow, and comment on We're Still Standing. When you do, you help raise awareness for youth in our juvenile justice system. To learn more about this work and join the movement to reach every youth, visit everyyouth.org.